0: All right. Well, as I mentioned, we're going we're gonna to study the Gospel of Mark over the coming weeks. And uh, Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, which maybe is why it's my favorite. It takes so little time to read. 16 chapters, and it's, it is uh, succinct. Some of Mark's favorite words are immediately and drove. So literally, Mark is an action-oriented gospel. If you read Matthew, it's long, it's drawn out, has a lot of Hebrew history in it. If you have um, a cross-reference or a Bible with a lot of footnotes, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you realize chunks of Matthew can be found in the Old Testament. Matthew's very concerned about predictive prophecies. Luke is a volume one of a two-volume work, Luke and Acts. And so Luke goes into great details. Luke is best known for contributions when it comes to many of Jesus teaching around parables some of his most famous parables the Good Samaritan the the uh, the uh, the son that goes a-wandering you know those are in the Gospel of Luke John is deeply theological John tells us some stuff that the other Gospels don't tell us in fact most of John is preoccupied with the tail end of Jesus ministry leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection but not Mark Mark skips birth narratives. Mark skips even resurrection appearances of Jesus. It just announces he was raised from the dead. But it is all action. I think Mark was written for men. You know, as far as it's an, it's, it is, it is action-oriented, it's not high on filigree, there's not a lot of extraneous stories. It's almost as if Mark's like, if you want more, read the other Gospels. But I'm going to give you sort of the Cliff's Notes of the gospel. And so it starts with this pronouncement that Jesus is the Son of God. It concludes with Jesus is the Son of God and literally right smack dab in the middle in the eighth chapter, there is a profession of faith when Jesus says, who do you say you are? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's right in the middle. And so Mark is kind of telling one story, but doing so in a way using brief amount of words and then on top of that most scholars even today uh, liberal or conservative tend to say that Mark was Peter's gospel that Mark who wasn't an eyewitness to these things is probably writing down the recollections of Peter but for our purposes as we dive into Mark what we're going to note is that Jesus is lifted up as the example of what it means to have a, a, a relationship with God. To be a disciple of God. That Jesus is going to demonstrate in what he does and what he says. And so, with that being said, where does, in your imagination, your mind, your opinion, where does the Christian life begin? The life of a Christian. Where, how does that begin? Conception. So everybody who's conceived as a Christian? Oh, okay, until they, okay, all right. Well, that is a way of looking at that. That's a fascinating way of looking at it until you turn to sin and are scarred by that gene. When they believe, yeah, okay. When the Spirit moves into you? Oh yeah, when the Spirit convicts you, and and then you respond into that. Okay, yeah. Baptism, when you hear, when you hear hear about him. him. Okay, that's how you come to faith—is someone tells you, right? That's right. Over here, I heard baptism. Over here, it's fascinating. That's where Mark's gospel picks up. Mark's gospel starts not with the birth of jesus not with the shepherds not with the visit of wise men none of the christmas time stuff mark again is all action and so he starts out with a pronouncement of who jesus is and goes right into baptism so let's start with the very beginning mark 1 1 someone just read us the very first verse out loud just verse 1 of mark 1 someone got that All right, so some scholars are like, that almost feels like a title to the book, that that almost is sort of the encapsulation, that's the kickoff to it. Does anybody know what Jesus, the name, means? Some of you have been around church a long time and you've heard it, and some of you are like, I've heard it a dozen times, I just don't remember what it is. Charlie? Okay, but what does it mean? To heal, it's it, it, it actually combine both these. It's that that Jehovah that 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 it's uh, that uh, that Jehovah heals or that Jehovah saves. So heal is a good word in some regard for being saved, as being made whole. And so the name Jesus was uh, a common name. Even now, if you go into parts of the Latin American world, going to go into Mexico, there's a fair amount of guys named Jesus, which. As a kid growing up, I didn't know a single guy named Jesus until one played for the Detroit Tigers. And I still remember, like, someone should tell him not to use that name. That's Jesus' name. I didn't realize that it's just uh, Joshua in the Old Testament. It was an extremely common name. And even now, you can imagine some Mexican mom who's like, my baby, I'm going to call him Jesus. Maybe Maybe he'll be like Jesus. And then when he's about age two, he's like, nothing like Jesus, right? Nothing like him. I should have named him Judas. That's what I should have named that kid. But right away, we have Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, and Christ. What's Christ mean? Messiah. That's right. It's the Greek word, Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah. So uh, any guesses on Messiah? Messiah. What that means? These are the words like we're so used to hearing. If you've been around church any length of time, you're like, it probably means something. I grew up, by the way, if you're like me, when I was a little kid, I just assumed it was his last name. You know, like Mr. Christ. I didn't know that that was a title, but it's a title. Any guesses on what Messiah? S- Savior, what is it? Promise, Promise One? Yeah. yeah so it's this idea that taking these ideas together... This is somebody who's remarkably set apart for something. So you would think of, hey, if this person saved my village from an invading force, that person is your savior. You might call him a messiah in Hebrew terms. The big idea is is this is an anointed person set apart. And so right away Mark lets us know this is about Jesus, Christ, and the son of God, that this isn't a normal person. This is a unique person. So then he goes on and he does some quoting from the Old Testament. Someone just read uh, verses two and three, would you? I love that, uh, that second line, that verse 3 line, because in another gospel, when someone goes to John the Baptist and they're like, are you the Messiah? He's like, no, I'm just the voice in the wilderness, the one crying, make straight the pathways for the Lord. I'm like, what a cool name. Like, what a, Wouldn't that be like a great job description? Like, my job is to make straight the pathways for the Lord who's coming. That is a good. Now, if, you're, if you have a little footnote you might notice that verse two, even though Mark says it's what Isaiah said, and you read verse two, verse two has a, uh, on some of your translations will have a little uh, letter or a number, and then you drop down and you're like, it says Malachi. He's quoting Malachi, not Isaiah. And uh, the assumption is is that Isaiah compared to Malachi, Isaiah is a major prophet, Malachi is a minor prophet. And with all due respect, it's sort of like you're quoting the major prophet. So Mark is quoting the prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, but he's given attribution to Isaiah. He's not He's not necessarily making a mistake. It's always fun to go back into ancient documents and go, why'd they say it that way? And we attribute things differently. If we were to quote people, we would try to do our best at giving the quote to the right person. But... As far as Malachi, you know, what Malachi's doing is he's clarifying Isaiah, or Isaiah is clarifying Malachi. And so um, so then he goes on to say, and this is interesting because he starts with Jesus, but then he goes to John the Baptist. So somebody just read verse four. All right, so what's John doing? He's baptizing, he's preaching, repentance. So First, let's start with repentance. Yes. But why is it so hard? What's that? Inertia. Yeah. Explain that, Gene. Yeah. We tend to think of inertia of uh, things in motion, it stays in motion. But if a things at rest, it stays at rest. Inertia can just be... Getting to experience, how many of you have some habit, you don't have to confess it, you will not, I will not put you on the spot, some habit in your life that has stuck with you since you were a kid and you're like, if only I could break that thing. Any? um, It should be all our hands. Now some of you are very remarkable people and then there's the rest of you who are like, I'm never raising my hand ever when a preacher asks, ever. For me to raise my hand. So I understand. You're a stiff-necked people. That's how it is. I get it. I'm that same way, by the way. Whenever they're like, hey, stand up if. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that.
1: Oh, yeah. That's
0: right. Don't raise your hand. That's right. That's right. And so John preaches repentance of sin. Now, repent. this is one of those words that we can glance by. And it's so easy to move past quickly without letting it penetrate our souls. And we've already mentioned, oh, it's difficult because we kind of are stuck in a certain pattern. It's hard. And yet, it's so essential for our spiritual life. And so John goes out and he's preaching, apparently, about sin and telling people, knock it off. His major messages seem to be, you people are getting it wrong. You need to stop getting it wrong and get it right. So here's a question. What is the difference between repentance and regret? Because almost all of us have experienced some form of regret, even if we've never repented of anything ever. What's the difference? Okay, say more. If you're repentant, is that what you're saying? If you're repenting, you're moving forward to take action. Versus regret, which is what? You just feel bad. Have you ever noticed that most of us, or many of us, have exper- I think experience this, we experience regrettance, not repentance? This is like every kid that literally got caught with a hand in the cookie jar. And what do they do? They regret being caught. This is every politician who's caught on camera or a hot microphone or on video saying or doing something. And later, they're full of regrettance. But then they do it again, Right? Don't name any names. I know some of you right now are like, I'm going to mention, so don't do it. Don't do it. Gene, you're doing it. I'm so proud of you right now. You haven't mentioned. I'm so proud of you. So good. So good. His tongue is bleeding. Regrettance, it confuses us and makes us think we're repenting. I think that one of the enemies of repentance is regret. Because in regret, we torture ourselves for what we have done or said. And we beat ourselves up and we feel terrible. And yet, it doesn't change a thing. Repentance is to change your entire disposition. To move away from something and tell yourself tell yourself a new truth. To preach yourself the gospel. Think about the various sins that men get caught up in. And part of the way we get caught up in is we don't tell ourselves what's true. We do not tell ourselves what's true. And so then if we get caught or don't get caught, we regret it. We feel bad about it. But what we've never done is changed our attitude about what the thing is, have we? And this is where I, just as it, I think it's just important for us to think about, is that when John came to prepare the way for the Lord, one of the things he did was break up the hard soil of that region to say that the patterns you've been stuck in, either because you're moving in the wrong direction or you're sitting in the wrong thing, you have got to change your mind about those things. And you have to tell yourself something new that's true. No, that's a great question. I just started to answer it. But uh, do you have to repent or re- do you have to regret before you repent? What do you guys think? What's What's been your experience in that? Okay, so, so in some way, but here's, but the question on the floor is, do you have to feel regret to then repent? So in other words, it, if I hear what you're saying is, if I didn't know something was wrong, I, I wouldn't have felt any regret. I would have thought, I'm doing, I'm doing right. But when Christ comes into my life and the Holy Spirit comes in, maybe I read something in Scripture or the Spirit just, and then I might experience, I, I've already gone through repentance because I'm following Christ, but now I might backwards regret. Did I hear you right? No, I actually, I I share this same thing, is that uh, I, maybe it's just, I think we're all wired different. So some people, um, my wife will apologize for things that she didn't do. I, I don't know if you have someone like that in your life, and our eldest child, our daughter, is exactly like that. She'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. And every now and then I'm like, for what? You didn't do anything wrong. And so there'll be an apology and because they feel bad over something. I'm the opposite way. I, ne- I hardly ever feel bad. So I, but I know what's true. So, uh, so there are certain things where I, my conscience is clear. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it in another passage in 1 Corinthians. He says, my conscience is clear, but it doesn't mean I'm right. And, and so we could have a clear conscience about something... And either do uh, something out of ignorance, because we just don't know what's true, or out of a a volitional act of wrongdoing, but we feel good about it. So uh, I have a very uh, good friend, and years ago, he'd met a, a charming woman that he fell head over heels with. The only problem is he was married at the time and had kids with the wife. So, but he he was and he was involved in a church and he and he was very clear god wants me to be happy this is what's going to make me happy and near as i could tell his conscience was never dinged in the process so you could repent of something you did and not feel bad about it strangely enough you could confess something you never did but you feel bad so i bring this up regret and repentance because we have to be very careful about our emotions. Sometimes we will feel shame over cultural things that aren't violations of God's law. So, uh, so for instance, my grandmother uh, grew up in a, a holiness kind of tradition. And uh, I remember her telling me that she felt very uncomfortable going to see a movie in the movie theater. She could watch a made-for-TV movie at home on TV or even the movie with commercials on her TV. But she was concerned about going to the movie theater. And so her feelings of guilt over going to the movie theater would be misinformed. It isn't going to the movie theater. It's maybe what you go see in the movie theater that would be a sin. In fact, uh, when I was in Bible college and she brought this up to me, she goes, she had been invited by one of my cousins to go see a Disney movie about dogs. And I told her, I said, Grandma, I think that's okay. It's G-rated and it's a cartoon made by Disney. And she said, "Uh, well, what if the Lord comes back while we're in the movie theater? Will I be embarrassed? And I said, what if the Lord comes back while you're sitting on the toilet She had a very very vivid imagination of her body going up through the movie theater uh, ceiling. And then she had a new one of her pants at her ankles. And uh, she went to see the movie. So I wasn't trying to convince her to go to the movie. But I was trying to help her understand. Just because she felt something was a violation of God's law didn't mean it was so. Any more than our lack of feeling that it's a violation uh, makes it not a violation. Well, it all depends, doesn't it? I mean, uh, this is what I mean is, is, some things we do have such a, uh, a crater hole effect on a person's life, our own as well as others, that if we feel no remorse or regret, that's kind of strange. I mean, because we will have affected other people. Some of the violations that we commit against God are very personal, internal, and so we may not feel regret because we may not feel the implications of how it affects other people. My whole point isn't don't feel regret. My main point is sometimes we can repent by saying you know this was wrong and I'm not going to do this anymore. Even though I feel okay about it I'm, I'm going to choose to honor God in the way I live my life here. So I'm not going to wait till I feel bad to change. I'm going to I'm going to offer myself up fully and completely to God and experience transformation. And later I might feel regret. I might. But many of the things that we regret in life are passing temporal things. We regret our use of time. We regret or misuse of time. We regret this uh, purchase, a variety of things that we feel regret over that are not necessarily intertwined with our spiritual life. So so hopefully, all right, well, let's move on to the next next little bit here. So so uh, John is a uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it says in verse 5, I'll just read this one. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to, went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so uh, whenever uh, language like all... Uh, It it doesn't mean the entire citizenry of Jerusalem and Judea came. It just means it was a mass of humanity that was coming out. And here's something that's really easy to miss in this. The epicenter of spiritual transformation, of spiritual life, in that time, in that region, was where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And where specifically in Jerusalem? At the temple. And were the people going to Jerusalem and to the temple for this fiery, uh, spiritually revitalizing experience? No. Were they going to see the priest or the high priest dressed in fancy robes? No. No they're going out to see a guy dressed like a crazy man who eats bugs who preaches hellfire and brimstone and the the people are literally fired up pardon the pun they are they are moved by this have you ever experienced something like that in your life where where it's it's in the oddest of places that God has gotten a hold of you. Anybody courageous enough to share that? A Billy Graham revival here in Oklahoma City or where? Oh, in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid, there's just nobody like him today where I'd be flipping around the channel. I'd be like a 10, 11, 12 years old. Actually, I wasn't flipping around the channel. There were no remotes. I was doing this around the channel. And uh, I was the remote control in my household. Billy, get up and uh, change that channel. So I was up there, and I'm clicking around. All of a sudden, it's Billy. And it's like, there was just something. It. They're calling you again. Uh, there's there I mean, There's just something about that. How about anything else that strikes you in a moment, maybe as you were driving in your truck or going, Yeah. At Promise Keepers, which one did you go to? Kansas City and Dallas. I went to the Pontiac Silverdome. Dome. I, ne- I never experienced anything like that 70,000, 75,000 men singing holy, 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 while they're also throwing styrofoam airplanes off the balcony. And I thought, this would never happen at a women's conference that there'd be a bunch of guys who are like singing, crying, holding hands, and throwing paper airplanes off the balcony. I was like, this is magical. That's a great example. You know, there's a great example. Who would have thought that a college football coach would lead to a spiritual renewal among men in the United States? Coach McCartney, I'm friends with his son. And Mark, uh, Mark uh, and I sometimes swap stories. And through Mark, I got to meet Coach McCartney at an event once and it just my life was touched by him directly but also indirectly so my father-in-law and my mother-in-law they were like a lot of married couples they'd hit about 20 plus years and thought do we want to do this any longer kids were heading off to college they started to live in separate parts of the house and so while they attended church internally their spiritual lives and the family was just everything was a mess And so somehow, one of dad's friends said, hey, there's this event, a group of men out in Denver. It was like one of the first promise keepers, or it may have been the first. And dad goes out there, and he comes back with the seven promises of a promise keeper. And one of those things was about his duty as a husband and as a father. And the man that I knew, the man that I helped officiate his funeral, was a different man than, it, than the first 20 plus years of his married life with my mother-in-law. So there, what was wild was the people who knew him a long time could literally say, Rob used to be so angry. Rob was short-tempered. Uh, Rob was so externally motivated about a bunch of stuff. And then God got a hold of him and he, he renewed his faith in Christ That's a great example. Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, stroll down memory lane for me, but. What happened? It was the preaching of God's word. Oh, why has it stopped? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I mean, the the organization, here's one theory. When these sorts of revival things happen, they meet a need at a time. And then once that need has been met, they've served their purpose so that's one theory I mean think about this uh, and I know just from the history of our church most of our men's groups I think including this one started like decades ago but on the heels of promise keepers the the Tuesday morning group that meets in here as I understand it started after promise keepers there's another Tuesday morning men's group some of you guys go to. That started on the heels. So some of these groups actually the idea wasn't to have men at a big festival. The idea was to have men living Christ like lives. Do you know if Youth for Christ is still going on? Oh yeah, 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 there's a Youth for Christ. Mm -hmm. No, there in fact one of the youth one of their Youth for Christ uh, guys who's very involved or on their board or something's actually on the weekends works on our security team. So I've chatted with him. Well, so the reason that this I, I, I wanted to zero in on this particular verse here is just to remind us that the, the, that the spiritual epicenter of our lives is where God is meeting us. Now, the spiritual community is centered in our modern day in the church or churches. And so you might attend crossings or you might attend a different church. And so that's, that is a massive piece but what we also have to remember is the to be people who are receptive to god's message wherever we're at and so there was something happening where people like you got to come out and hear john well what's he talk about how wicked i am i might actually go if my neighbor was like yeah i heard this guy talking about how wicked i am you should come i'm like well if he talks about how wicked you are i might come Point fingers, you know, affirm your wickedness. But there's There's something about when the when the spirit is on the move and this is what's not to miss. These movements that take place from time to time and were taking place there, it was literally an act of God. That in the Old Testament there was these prophecies that a time is coming when I'm gonna send somebody Who's going to prepare the soil? Who's going to make the path straight for the anointed one who's come? And so uh, John goes on, and he or Mark goes on, and he says, uh, uh, verse verse six. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And some people are like, locusts is a type of bean. No, that's not the locust. He ate bugs. Uh, so if you're grossed out by that, if you eat shrimp, you eat water bugs. So you know don't get high and mighty. Same basic thing. Um, and his message was, uh, his message was, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's not full of himself. John's not taking to heart the fact he's the most popular man in the countryside. John says, there's a guy coming. He's coming in. I, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. A disciple would follow around the master and do everything the master said to do. Except there's one thing he wouldn't do, a menial tasks like take off his shoes. That's what a household servant was for. So the household servant would do the menial tasks like taking off your shoes. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy of that task. I mean, that's a level of humility that few of us could articulate. He says, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's coming and it's going to be more than a ceremonial washing. Now, John's baptism was fascinating. People would come, and it was sort of one and done. They'd come and get baptized. You might have read somewhere or heard various people say, in the ancient world, and even now in certain uh, places, there's ritual, um, there's ritual baths, or there's people will go in, and, and that time they did. They, the archaeologists find them. They have these ritual baths where people would go, and from time to time, ceremonially, go in the water for one purpose or another, john's baptism wasn't hey see you tomorrow come back get baptized again this was one and done this was a proclamation of identification this is i'm identifying myself with john's movement and john's baptism and that's what the lord steps into the next section it just says at that time jesus came from nazareth and galilee so that's up north and he was baptized by john in the jordan now if you read the other gospels they There's a lot more to it than that. But again, Mark is brief. He's cliff-noting this for you. Mark is sort of like, he's like the friend who takes that really good photograph from their vacation that captures a bunch of things in it. So they're able to go, okay, here's the context. There's this and this and this. And so what you're getting is a slideshow from John. Other gospel writers give you vignettes or little clips not John. John's like, here's a picture. He went down. He got baptized. And so in the process, it says as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my son in whom I love with you. I am well pleased. He's not saying today I'm making you my son. He's making the declaration of what's been, what always has been. You are my son. And so the Trinity shows up at the baptism. Spirit descends like a dove. Was it a dove? We don't know. Was it like super dove? We don't know. Could other people see it? Actually, read all the Gospels. We do not know if only Jesus saw this and reiterated it later, if Jesus and John the Baptist saw it, if Jesus and other people saw it. We do not know. But what we know in Mark's telling is Jesus saw this happen. He comes out of the water. Heavens tear open. Voice of the Father. Dove descends. There's this moment of the community of the one God who is in three persons as the hymn writer says blessed trinity and so in that he says at and now this is the part and this is kind of we'll wrap up here in the last next couple minutes here it says at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and uh, that word at once or immediately john uses that term 150 he uses that verb 150 times in his gospel. 16 chapters, 150 times he uses immediately or right away. So again, action, you know, John, uh, Mark is uh, Mark's all action. And it says, uh, immediately the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he's with wild animals and angels attended to him. So Jesus identifies himself with John's movement of renewal and in fact if you if you look at the gospel of john the gospel of john after the temptation says look behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and so maybe what jesus is doing is as he's going in the water he's identifying himself as the lamb of god and so john later puts an exclamation point on that but um But here's what I want us to drill in on. Who was it that sent Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted? Yeah, it was the Holy Spirit. And this idea of tempting or testing or proving, one of the things that we often get wrong is if I'm living right, I will feel or experience little to no testing, temptation, or proving. And somewhere it's snuck in. It's not in the Bible, but somewhere it's snuck into our minds that if I give my life to God, my life gets a little bit easier. And in some ways that's true. But in some ways it's the opposite. And that's not because we've messed up, but that's because we've identified ourselves with God. We've identified ourselves with with his endeavors, with his movement. And as a result, testing and temptation comes. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, how does that set with you, that idea that give myself to God and then life gets harder in some regards, not in all regards. Yeah, he probably Paul probably wouldn't be a big fan of prosperity gospel. I'm a huge fan of it myself. It's just not working out for me yet, you know. We were listening to this, uh, the book's called Unbroken, and it's about Louis Zamperini. And a very big popular book, became a movie. You might have seen the movie, but the movie just kind of glazes over at the end. It's like, and then he became nicer. But in the book, as I w- we were listening to it as we were traveling cross-country, um, heading into California we were moving out there, we were out there for four years. And so as we were driving and listening to the book, when they got to the part where he comes back home, his life is absolute chaos. And I'm thinking to myself, all my Christian friends told me to read this book. Somewhere in there, there's got to be some God story somehow. But up till now, it's just this awful story of a guy's survival of crash landing in the pacific ocean floating for 42 days before he's picked up by the japanese sent to a japanese pow camp treated awful i mean it's a terrible it's a tough tough story to listen to tough movie to watch and so i'm thinking there's got to be a god story and then they're like he's in la and it's 1949 and i'm like i love church history and i knew what was going to happen in la in 1949 if you don't know that's when billy graham became billy graham up till 1949 Billy Graham was a traveling speaker for Youth for Christ and in 1949 he put up some tents and started some preaching and the spirit descended. I mean something happened in 1949 and and without giving up all the story Louis Zamperini ends up at a Billy Graham thing and it's a so see the movie if you're not a reader but there's also a sequel movie that tells the Christian end of the story. And you kind of need both, because uh, Angelina Jolie made the movie, which was very well done, but there's no way she was going to give credit to Jesus Christ at the end of that film for a transformation. No offense to Julia, uh, 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 Angelina, I mean. So, all right, you know, that's a very, that's a really healthy way of looking at it. Is that we can't grow without challenges in our life. That um, some of those are challenges we bring on ourselves. And some of those are challenges we just meet because of life on this earth. And there's an opportunity in those challenges. To grow deeper in our faith. To dive deeper in our faith. Jesus didn't need to grow deeper in his faith. What he needed to show us and prove to us is. He could overcome. That. He was, in his fully human state, able to withstand all the temptation we're able to withstand. So, he shows us that. But for us, who are meandering through this life, it's also a, there's, there's a certain victory that comes when you face down a temptation that's been a besetting sin and you beat it. There's something that encourages your faith and strengthens your faith. Yeah, well, there's, do we find God or does God find us? So there's two schools of thought on that, you know. So exact, that, That's That yeah, actually, that's the proper theological answer. Gene gave it. Yes. Um, does God reveal Himself to us, or do we, in some quest, bump into Him? Well, the Bible shows both. He's very engaged. Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'm not going to cast him out. So the Father's doing the drawing. But do we know that? We don't. So there, there is something to it. And then also, the question is, do we know who God's drawing? This is the monkey off our back. This is good news. Is if you have a person in your life that God's laid on your heart to talk to about things of God, what you don't have to worry about is, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I screw this up? Uh, what if I don't lead them to Christ? Not your worry. That's God's worry. You just be the willing vessel, and God will make things turn out okay. As a as a teacher and preacher of the word, I'm amazed at what people will come up to me afterwards and say, "You know, when you said this, it really meant a lot to me." And what I never tell them is, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> the main points. The things that are on slides, almost never did someone go, oh, that third slide changed my life. You know, it's, it's some other thing. Sometimes I didn't even say it, but they heard it, and I'll just let God take credit for all that. And so it is with us, too. You don't have to be publicly preaching God's Word to have that same experience. In your heartfelt, earnest, honest approach to a friend, they can translate. And so... Great, great question right there. So, well, I've taken a lot of our time today. Are there any last-minute questions or comments or smart remarks? Well, it's it, it, you're, you're absolutely right that we in our day and age are very uncomfortable with the spiritual forces that really exist all around us. The Apostle Paul says the weapons of our warfare, they're not of this earth But they are still mighty to take down these strongholds. That's my paraphrase. Mark is letting his readers know. But in their world, they already believed it. In our world, we don't tend to believe it. He starts out saying, all of this is of cosmic origin. This all starts with the creator God. And then when he gets into this temptation story, he introduces there are forces of evil out there, but God and his angels overcomes. So we keep our eye on the right person. We keep our eye on God. We have a an absolute understanding that there is evil around us of a spiritual variety. We don't have to go looking for Stephen King movies to rent, but in fact, that's what the devil would have us do. Like, yeah, yeah, it's killer clowns. It's killer clowns. No, it's probably not. It's, it's probably something that pops up as you're looking through the internet. It's probably a show that's recommended on Netflix. It's probably, it's probably nothing quite like fang clown with a balloon. It's probably more like the normal besetting sin. And who do you think arranged the demonic appointment? So on that happy note, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thanks for this fine group of gentlemen. Thanks for the opportunity you've given us to gather together. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. And as we journey through it, God, would you illuminate us, help us understand the message you have for us. And so, Lord, we trust you with that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gentlemen, thanks for letting me be with you today. We'll see you next time.